So in our text this morning, the latter half of the text that Jamie read for us, Mary was the main speaker. Mary is known in some faith traditions as the Blessed Virgin Mary. In Latin, her song begins with the word magnificat. And so this whole portion of Scripture has come to be known as the Magnificat or Mary's Magnificat. And as you have been out and about this season or recently, you've probably heard Andrea Bocelli or Josh Groban or maybe Pavarotti singing some version of the Ave Maria, maybe on your Spotify playlist. That entire song, Ave Maria, is actually a prayer to Mary. The second verse of that song asks Mary to pray for us sinners. The official catechism of the Roman Catholic Church teaches this about Mary. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, preserved immune from the stain of original sin. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin in her whole life long. You see, Mary, according to the Roman Catholic Church, had no original or inherited sin and guilt. And furthermore, she never actually sinned her entire life. And that means Mary did not need a Savior. That's the Roman Catholic Church, Church's perspective on Mary. But I wonder what Mary's perspective was of Mary. Notice what verse 46 says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's perspective is quite different. God is her Savior. She, like each of us, needs a Savior. And Mary is worshiping God in this text because God is her Savior. And in her song of worship, she helps us to answer the question, what makes God a saving kind of God? What about who he is makes him a God worthy of being described Savior? What about who he is and what he has done brings us to the point of knowing God as a saving God? Well, there are three descriptions in Mary's song that help us to exclaim with Mary, God, my Savior. First of all, God is mighty. Second, God is holy. And third, God is merciful. So let's look at these three headings this morning at this text under these three headings. First, God is mighty. In verse 49, Mary describes God as the mighty one. The might and power, the ability of God, the strength of God is without limit. He is not simply strong. He's the strongest. He's not merely capable. He's the ablest. He's not merely powerful. He is 
the one who is mighty. Mary is rejoicing that the mighty one has leveraged his might on her behalf. He has done, she says, great things for me. Now, what specifically has he done? Verse 48 says that he looked with favor upon Mary's low position by choosing her to bear the Savior of the world. And there's something worth noting for we who generations later look at Mary and call her blessed, who long for God to act in mighty ways on our behalf. You see, this passage opens for us God's eternal plan to exalt the lowly. Mary was part of the lowest social classes in her culture as an unwed single woman. But that wasn't the whole story. The proud and the rich and the cultural elites in every society are not the best part of the story, nor are they the most important part. And the rich and proud and culturally influential shouldn't become the benchmark of our own ideas of success or failures in life. God's eternal plan is to elevate all of those who entrust themselves to him and to put to shame all those who've trusted in any other means outside of himself for their own success. So if you're a Christian this morning, hear in Mary's praise, good news for you, a follower of God. The exaltation of God's people began 2,000 years ago when God looked down with favor upon a young, overlooked woman and out of sheer grace elevated her to a position of near universal notoriety. And let's make an argument from the lesser to the greater here. How much more so will God's grace exalt those who entrust themselves to the heavenly son of the woman in our text? How much more will God exalt those who are united by faith to his son, the Lord Jesus, the one who took on flesh, who submitted to the womb of Mary to bring us to God? Notice how God's power is displayed in Mary's song. Mary describes what God does in these verses. And in what God does, we see the might of God. First, God reveals his purposes. Now, we see this at the end of Mary's song, but we'll start with it because everything that happened to Mary to this point and everything that will take place through her son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is all according to God's eternal plan. There's nothing of happenstance about it. There's nothing coincidental. It's all under God's eternal plan. Or as verse 55 says, just as God spoke to Mary's ancestors. God's might is seen in how he reveals his purposes thousands of years in advance and then brings about the course of human history perfectly to see them fulfilled. 
But second, God or Mary describes God as seeing his people. She says that he looked with favor upon her. Now, this seeing is not a passing glance. It's not even what I'm doing this morning, kind of looking around and trying to make eye contact with various individuals. No, this is a look of loving care, intense gaze, compassionate looking. Calvin paraphrases Mary's words here. He says, I was unknown and despised, but that did not prevent God from deigning to cast his eyes upon me. So Christian, in no less a real and compassionate way, God sees you this morning. God's eyes are upon you. No, you haven't received any angelic visitor like Mary has, and you certainly aren't the parent of our Lord Jesus, but God has just as truly looked upon us with grace and compassion. And that's not what we deserve, is it? There's nothing desirable within or without that would cause God, the God of heaven, to decide we were indispensable to his eternal plan. But he has stopped nonetheless. He has stooped nonetheless to look upon you, dear child of God, with love, with compassion, with mercy, with pity, with grace, with joy. And in this, the might of God is on display. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. The might of God is seen in how he reveals his purposes and in how he looks upon his people, but Third, God's might is also seen in how God acts for his people. Verse 51 through 55 reads this way. He has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. I love the image that verse 51 begins with. He has demonstrated power with his arm. Think of a guy flexing in the mirror at home or maybe for his wife to get a laugh. The mothers and Sojourn Kids volunteers in the, uh, in the room know what it is to flex your arm as you lift a child. You are demonstrating strength with your arm without any other aid. And that is the picture here. There are no armies God is using. No political manipulation. 
No legislation. No machine or algorithm. No artificial intelligence. No angelic hosts. Just his arm. And God's might and power are displayed as he flexes his might to orchestrate the most shocking of reversals. But isn't that the way God has always worked? Surprising reversals of circumstances? The dead are raised. The sick are healed. The Israelites pass through the Red Sea unscathed. The Egyptians are annihilated. Cultural norms are shattered. Nomadic nobodies are chosen by God. Religious aristocrats are rebuked. Fishermen and adulterous women and tax collectors and sinners are received. Stunning reversals. God acts for his people by flexing his power on their behalf, and he does so by orchestrating the most stunning of reversals. Now, notice what Mary says about the rich in these texts, these verses. Now, in our Western way of thinking, we limit the idea of being rich to having assets, right? If you have a savings account and stocks and bonds and a house, vehicle, some might consider you rich, If you earn less than 18,000 a year in a household of two, then our government considers you to live below the poverty line. But as one commentator explains, helping us understand this cultural moment of the text, in agrarian societies, farming cultures, the terms rich and poor are more than economic or political though economics and politics are included. To be rich in the New Testament is to be able to defend one's honor, one's position. To be poor is to be vulnerable, open to attack, open to loss. And here Mary sees God as one who brings about stunning reversals. The self-reliant rich ones are the ones who are vulnerable to loss. While the hungry, they are filled and they are defended. But why? Why does God work this way? And John Calvin again helps us here. He says, The princes of this world grow extravagantly insolent, indulge in luxury, swell with pride, and are intoxicated with the sweets of prosperity. That's a good sentence. If the Lord cannot tolerate such ingratitude, we need not be surprised. The usual consequence is that those whom God has raised to a high estate do not occupy it long. When the Lord raises mean persons to an exalted rank, he triumphs over the pride of the world and at the same time encourages simplicity and modesty in his own people. You see, God flexes his mighty arm on behalf of his people. He acts for us. But like a two-year-old, we could ask the question again, why? 
And patiently, God answers us through his words in Mary's song. Why does God act on behalf of his people? Well, number four, because God remembers his mercy. God remembers his mercy. But there's a problem here that I hope you're starting to feel as you read that sentence. God remembers his mercy. To remember implies a prior forgetting. Now, my memory personally is not that great. And it may be because my focus is not up to par, but that uh, in the words of the inimitable Dory, that short-term memory loss has provided for some comical scenes in our marriage. I will ask Elizabeth a question and five minutes later ask the same question, remembering that I actually asked the same question, but not remembering what she said. So she'll repeat the answer and that will trigger my memory. My remembering implies a forgetting. So is that what's going on here? God remembers his mercy like he had forgotten? Oh, that's part of my character. I should probably exercise that at some point. Well, of course not. God can't actually forget anything. God is God. But if you look at Israel's history prior to Mary's song, there were long stretches of time when it appeared to any human observer that God had forgotten to show mercy to his people. And if you wonder about that point, just consider that Israel was enslaved to Egypt for 400 years until God delivered them. Consider that between the end of the book of Malachi in the beginning of Matthew, there are 400 years of prophetic silence from God. It appeared from a human vantage point that God had forgotten his mercy. And then suddenly, an angel appears to a young woman and tells her she's going to give birth to the Son of the Most High God. And humanly speaking, it is as if God had suddenly remembered all of his promises to Israel. I wonder if you ever feel like God has forgotten to be merciful to you. If you ever feel like God has forgotten to act on your behalf according to his promises. You pray and you pray and you pray about something and there's no answer. Or you fight and you struggle and fall again and again and again with that same sin. Or you patiently submit to God's will, but it seems like you can never catch a break. The promotion always goes to someone else or whatever you put your hands to, it just seems to fall apart. Any relationship you touch seems to go south. Maybe it just seems like your children won't listen. Has God forgotten to show mercy? 
child of God, remember first and foremost that God has already told us that in a broken world, we will have difficulty and suffering in this life as we follow him. We are broken people in a broken world surrounded by broken people. There's no mystery in this, just reality. But remember second, that you must tell yourself the whole story. The stories we tell ourselves matter. While from our limited vantage point, it may seem that God has forgotten his mercy towards us in a given moment, the whole story involves the restoration of all things. And we are occupying just a brief span of time in this story. God hasn't forgotten you. God has revealed his plans already. God sees you. God knows you. God is acting on your behalf. God is flexing his might right now in this moment, child of God, for you. Because God remembers his mercy. He is simply working out his purposes by his plan in his time. So God is a savior because God is mighty. Second, God is a saving kind of God because God is holy. Mary says, he who is mighty has done a great things for me and holy is his name. Now, my name is Isaiah. But that doesn't actually tell you much about me, does it? It doesn't tell you if I'm shy or gregarious, if I'm sneaky or bold, if I'm courageous or cowardly. All me saying my name is Isaiah tells you is that I respond to a certain six-letter word if you say it. That's all my name says. But in the ancient Near East, a person's name represented much more than simply what they went by. It represented their character, their reputation. And here, God's character, God's name, his reputation is said to be holy. And his holiness is expressed in how he overcomes any that are opposed to him. Now, remembering the storyline of the Bible as we read it is crucially important. This, this story, this song of Mary, these events surrounding this one chapter of the Bible is not isolated. It is set in a broken world, but a world that was not always broken, a world that was once perfect, but it's been broken by mankind's sin and rebellion against the perfect creator. And God's holiness and justice requires him to judge that rebellion. But in the most stunning reversal of fortunes in the Bible, the triune God conspired to rescue humanity from the justice that he himself must demonstrate. And so God the Son would take on flesh. He would live perfectly in every way we fail. 
He would die as a substitute in our place in order to bear the curse of our sin upon his shoulders. And then he would be raised again on the third day. And right here in this text, God's eternal plan is breaking into space and time. The triune God's plan to avenge his own holiness so that you and I, sinners, might be forgiven, received, loved, adopted, delighted in, that plan has just surfaced at this point in history. It's broken through the eternal plane separating God and man. And that inbreaking begins with something supernatural. Something that non-Christians can only wonder at. A virgin conceiving a child. Do you understand how foolish that sounds? A virgin bears a son. Why is this important to the story? Because God's holiness will be satisfied by the human birth of his eternal son sent to mankind to satisfy the just penalty for our sin, death. So God's might and God's holiness coincide in a moment of time to bring about this most miraculous of events, a virgin conceiving. God's holiness and love are not enemies. They meet perfectly in the person of Jesus. So what is it that makes God a saving kind of God? Well, first, he's mighty. Second, he's holy. But third, God is merciful. Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. From generation to generation, he is merciful to those who fear him. So friend, I wonder, do you view God as a merciful God? In your estimation, is God's mercy an afterthought to his normally vindictive nature? Or is God's mercy as core to who he is as, say, his holiness and justice. One modern Christmas song riffs off of Mary's words. Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those who sit in death's shadow. The sun on high pierced the night. Born was the cornerstone. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Mary and millions like Mary since she sang this song have come to know God as a personal, merciful God. I wonder if 
you have experienced the mercy of God in this same way. If you don't fear God, if you don't trust Him, worship Him, love Him as the supreme good of the universe, if there isn't at times something within you that wells up towards God with worship and devotion, then you have not yet experienced His mercy. And the application point is here quite simple. It's a call, an invitation to repent. You were made for worship. You were made to stand in awe of someone. And if you aren't worshiping God and standing in awe of Him, then you are standing in awe of someone or something else. And whatever you stand in awe of has become for you a type of Savior. Something you hope can rescue you from whatever it is that you think you need rescuing from. But friend, God is the one who is mighty, who can save you. He is the one who is holy, whose law you have broken, whose glory we have dishonored, whose will we have rebelled against. He is the one who is merciful, who has both the ability and the desire to forgive you. He stands ready to be your Savior if you will but repent of your idolatry, turn from your self-reliance and pride, empty your hands of self-will, and embrace Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. You can experience God today as a merciful God by embracing the Son of the Virgin in our text. Embracing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, satisfaction, and treasure. And if this is something you are interested in learning more about, then there is nothing that would thrill me more than to have a conversation with you after the service. The same would go for Nick, for Jeff. We would love to talk with you more about how you this Christmas season can experience God as your merciful Savior. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, I wonder what a message like this does within your heart. You serve a saving kind of God. A God whose posture is one of salvation. One who is mighty, holy, and merciful. But does that knowledge affect your disposition daily? Or do you live a life full of anxiety? and fear, and frustration. I'll level with you. I can be a very anxious person. There are times when my insecurities and fears well up within me and threaten to overwhelm anything good and beautiful and true in a given moment. And when I lean into that anxiety, it affects every part of my life. But... Is that what God would have for us? To live that sort of anxious life as his children. Listen in as 
Calvin counsels us once more on this point. Till God has been recognized as a Savior, the minds of men are not free to indulge in true and full joy, but will remain in doubt and anxiety. It is God's fatherly kindness alone and the salvation flowing from it that fill the soul with joy. In a word, the first thing necessary for believers is to be able to rejoice that they have their salvation in God. The invitation here is back to first things. It's back to the gospel. It's back to the fact that God is the sort of God who delights to be described as God, my Savior. Christian, this Christmas season and year-round, we have been freed from anxiety. We have been freed to embrace the wisdom and the goodness and the sovereignty and the might and the mercy and holiness of God leveraged for us. And so we can truly exult with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because He has indeed looked with favor on the humble condition of his servants. Let's pray together. Father, as a people, we bow before you in these moments in awe of the fact that you are a saving kind of God. You could have left us alone to grope in the darkness which we have created but you sent your Son to redeem us who were under the law that we might be your children. And so, Father, in these moments, I would ask that you would take the glorious richness of the truth of the gospel and plunge it deeper and deeper into the soul of every Christian here. Father, would you overwhelm us with the reality that you are our Savior. You are no longer our judge. You are no longer our enemy. You are our Father, our friend, our Savior. Father, we praise you for your might. We praise you for your holiness. We praise you for your mercy. And if there is one who has not yet experienced your mercy in this way, God, by the power of your Spirit, would you draw them to yourself, bring them to a place of repentance, so that they might be able to exult with Mary that you too are their Savior. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns now and forever. Amen.